Hello, and welcome back to Unprecedential, an AEI podcast on American constitutionalism. This is Adam White, and I'm joined, as always, by Tal Fortgang. Hi, Tal. Hi, Adam. That's all. As you and I explained in the original episode of this podcast series, the whole title, Unprecedential, it reflected the fact that we're not focused exclusively on Supreme Court precedents. We're talking about American constitutionalism outside of the court. But of course, the court isn't the only part of our government that sets precedents. And one of the most important sets of precedents in our nation's history are the precedents that our first president, George Washington, set in his administration. And so today we're so lucky to be joined by somebody who's written a fascinating new book on this very subject. Her name is Lindsay Travinsky. She is a White House historian at the White House Historical Association in Washington, D.C. She joined the Historical Association after competing a postdoctoral fellowship at the Center for Presidential History at Southern Methodist. She's received fellowships from the Fred Smith National Library for the study of George Washington. This spring, Harvard University Press published her fascinating new book, The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution. And so we're so glad, Lindsay, that you could join us today to discuss it. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really glad to be here. We're glad that you're here. This was just a joy to read. I can't recommend this book highly enough. Almost precisely at the midpoint of the book, I did the math here at page 163. So almost literally the midpoint of the book, you set this scene, quote, by late 1791, George Washington was ready to start creating a new advisory council in the executive branch. In his first years of his presidency, Washington had visited the Senate, contemplated a prime minister relationship with Congress, and consulted with the justices of the Supreme Court. But none of these options was suited to the task. Lindsay, how would you describe the task that Washington saw and the, the cabinet that he created to accomplish that task? It's such a great question. And I think as you mentioned in the introduction, so much of our government today is actually not written down. And so much of what happens in the day-to-day sort of process of dealing with executive and congressional business is years and years and years of customs that have just sort of built on top of one another. And we really see the scope of those customs when we actually look at Washington's administration, because all he had was the writing in Article 2 of the Constitution. And as I'm sure many of your listeners know, Article 2 is actually quite short, and there's not a whole lot there, and there's not a whole lot that tells him how he should go about dealing with things like, how do you interact with regular citizens? How do you interact with other branches of the government? How do you host social events? I mean, these things that we think are sort of trivial in nature actually had to be crafted from scratch. And so Washington had just a monumental task of figuring out what that was going to look like. On top of, of course, the actual business of running the country and the potential domestic or international crises that might come up, or the constitutional questions about how how to actually be a president. So when we think about, you know, when Washington was going into the presidency, at one point, he said that he felt like he was a prisoner going to the place of execution because there was so much pressure on him to make these decisions. And I think that's the best way to capture it. And so as you mentioned, I'm thrilled that it's halfway through the book. That's pretty funny. He tried all these different options. Some were in the Constitution and some weren't. And he really felt like they weren't sufficient to provide the advice and support that needed to be offered to him quickly and efficiently in in times of crisis. And that's really why he turned to the cabinet. Well, there's a lot in that answer that we're going to unpack in this discussion. And we'll get back to the things that he tried before he settled on the cabinet. But let's, as you pointed out, the Constitution doesn't say much, but it does say a few things. So let's start there. 
how would you describe what the Constitution says about what came to be the cabinet? Yeah, so the word cabinet isn't actually in the Constitution, and nor was an established advisory body like the cabinet eventually became. So it wasn't like they had used a different word. Instead, there are two options in Article 2 that are, are really important and that the delegates to the Constitutional Convention put in place to guide the president's actions. The first is that the president can request written advice from the department secretaries on issues pertaining to their department. And that is very carefully crafted because the advice was supposed to be written so that there was a paper trail or evidence about who said what and who advocated what position to basically force officials to take responsibility for for their positions. And they wanted the secretaries advising on their departments because they didn't want them to bloviate about subjects that they didn't know anything about. It was supposed to be advisors that were very well informed. So that was the first, that was the first portion. The second portion is that the Senate would advise and consent on treaties and appointments and other things of diplomatic nature. And this is sort of one that's hard for 21st century audiences to wrap their mind around just because the role the Senate now plays in diplomacy. But they really, the delegates really intended for the Senate to be a advisory body on foreign affairs. And that was a lot easier when the Senate was 24 people. And I say 24 because Rhode Island hadn't yet ratified the Constitution when the Senate first gathered. But that was really their intention. And so it wasn't just a rubber stamp or a rejection like we see today. And so Washington entered office intending to use those two options and really did his best. It just didn't work out very well. You mentioned the the Constitution's reference to the department heads giving written opinions. I mean, it's interesting. The Constitution itself refers to departments. Mm -hmm. It doesn't actually say what the departments are. It doesn't say how they should be sort of staffed up. That was all precedents of a sort that were set by President Washington and the first Congress in choosing what to establish. So we couldn't even take for granted that, you know, a secretary of state would be a member of the cabinet because there was no Department of State until Congress created it. And even once you create those entities, can't take for granted that those would necessarily become sort of the cabinet as we know it. I mean, it makes a certain sense, right? But this was all sort of deliberate choices by Washington. Yes, although I will say, so during the Revolutionary War, there started to be executive departments. And then during the Confederation period, there were executive departments as well, but they reported to Congress. They did not, they were not under the executive branch because there really wasn't one. So all of the people who were sort of discussing these options understood that it made sense to have one person running the Treasury and one person running the War Department because they had tried to lead those things by committee and that was a disaster. So they all sort of had this concept, but who those people were going to be, as you said, what those departments were going to be, that was still all to be decided. And Congress did create those departments in the summer of 1789. And then Washington, of course, made really influential appointments, which very much shaped the development going forward. Yeah, I teach administrative law at a law school. And on my first day of class every semester, I always ask the students to just try to imagine what it's like to be in the first Congress, right? When you can't take for granted sort of all of these, what we now call agencies, right? You can't take for granted that entire apparatus. You actually have to decide how to build a government. And so the story of Washington's role with Congress and building that government and then extending it into the cabinet is just fascinating. So the Constitution does refer to the executive power, but it doesn't define it. And of course, that's now been two centuries of debate over what that entails. But the point is, there just isn't a whole lot there. And as you just suggested, so much of it was, I wouldn't say presumed, but they had thought about this. They had examples, not just the con- from the Confederacy era, but the Articles of Confederation era, 
but from British experience, mm -hmm. right? The Privy Council that had informed the king. And you discuss a little bit of that in the book as sort of one of the things they, they knew, you know, from experience was an option. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think, you know, there, I think there are a couple of reasons why Article 2 is so short. One, it must have been incredibly awkward to be debating these things when Washington was in the room because right. everyone understood that, you know, he was, if there was a president, he was going to be that person. And maybe they also sort of trusted him to figure out some of those details and left some flexibility up to him. It's hard to say because they didn't necessarily write down why they didn't write down more. But I think a huge part of it, as you said, is was this concept of the British government and the British monarchy. And that was really the only system they knew well. It was the system that most of them had grown up under. And monarchy was what worked and what had, you know, governed most of the countries for most of the history that they were familiar with. And so they were very attentive to try and avoid creating a system that would facilitate a privy council or a monarchy. And one of the main reasons the delegates really rejected these proposals during the summer of 1787 for a council or a cabinet was because they wanted to avoid that system. They felt like that had really led to corruption and cronyism, and they didn't want that. Right. And particularly a system where this council would have formal authority, right? Not just in sort of a loose advisory role that the president would rely upon, but a privy council with, with specific constitutional authority would become sort of a den of intrigue. And, and Hamilton, mm -hmm. as you point out, Hamilton writes about this in his famous Federalist 70, right? Where he warns against that. We want the key and, and the framers had created a system where accountability would go all the way up to the president, mm -hmm. sort of in one president. But then that president does need to get advice. And the word advice, as you point out, does it, it is in the Constitution, right, in terms of advice and consent in the Senate's role. So when President Washington takes office and we have the first Senate, the natural place to look for advice in mm -hmm. sort of a loose advisory role would be the United States Senate of, as you said, 24 members. So President Washington and, if I remember correctly, Secretary of War Knox mm -hmm. come to the Senate one day for advice on a treaty. And this is how you open the book. What happens? So yeah, this is one of my favorite stories of all time. So Washington was going to send peace commissioners to go meet with representatives from various different Native American nations and then North Carolina and South Carolina. And Native American nations were considered foreign nations. So this was a matter of diplomacy. And because it was a matter of diplomacy, he was going to you know follow the letter of the Constitution and go consult with the Senate. And so he sent them all of the existing treaties that had been signed with Native American nations. He sent them letters letting him know that he was coming and, and what issues needed to be discussed. And then he arrives in August in 1789 at Federal Hall in New York City, which is where the seat of government was at the time. And he and Knox get there and he brings Knox because Knox had been the Secretary of War during the Confederation period. So he had overseen all of these treaties and could answer any questions that the senators might have. And Washington comes and he brings this address and he hands it to John Adams, who was the president of the Senate, as in his capacity as vice president. And Adams reads this address, and it has several questions at the end. And it's sort of off to a very inauspicious start because no one can hear Adams because the windows are open and it's a very loud street. So it's kind of a disaster in the making. Adams reads it again. And at the end, there are these questions that Washington wants the senators to debate and to give answers to. And he's met with silence. And McClay, who was William McClay, who was the senator from Pennsylvania at the time, writes in his diary that 
like a bunch of the senators were avoiding eye contact and and they were like twiddling their thumbs and playing with their papers and basically just trying to avoid being the one to speak because he speculated they were maybe intimidated by Washington. So he takes it upon himself to stand up and to say that they should really refer to the issue to committee to discuss it further and can Washington come back the following week. And Washington absolutely loses it. And he yells that it defeats every purpose of him coming there. Except, you know, you have to imagine it louder and scarier and he's taller and has a deeper voice. And and this is like the most famous man in the world and he's yelling at you. So he eventually calmed down and he agreed to come back. But on his way out of the building, he reportedly swore that he would never go back for advice. And I don't know if he actually said that. We don't have any evidence, but actions speak louder than words. And he did never go back for advice. So he was, he was very frustrated by the whole encounter. Now you said this is one of your favorite stories in American history. It's absolutely one of mine as well. The Diary of William McClay is just one of the greatest books in American history in terms of recounting uh, American politics and governance. And it's also got some hilarious depictions of Vice President Oh my Adams. gosh, amazing. But it does, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a fun book, but it does really make clear how unclear it was, the relationship mm-hmm. between the president and Congress, the president and the Senate, the vice president and the rest mm-hmm. of the government. So it gets off to that inauspicious start. As in the quote I read from that passage in the middle of the book, you point out the president had thought through and, and maybe attempted more of a prime minister relationship mm-hmm. with Congress. Could you just say a little bit about that and, and, and his outreach to the Supreme Court as well? Sure. So when Washington entered the presidency, he had a very close relationship with James Madison, who was in the House of Representatives at that point. And Madison was a very important advisor for him on a number of different issues, including when Washington first comes into office, Madison drafts the House's response to his basically inaugural address. And then Madison drafts Washington's response back to the House. And then he drafts the House's response back to Washington. So he's basically having correspondence with himself. But he was a very important advisor. And if there were issues that Washington was uncomfortable with or felt strongly about, he would sometimes talk to Madison about them. And he would try and sort of finagle things in the House to make it appropriate or how Washington wanted it. And there wasn't ever any like official relationship set up as like a prime minister, but he certainly was a go-between and very influential. That relationship started to deteriorate a little bit in 1791, accelerated in 1792 when Madison and Hamilton had their famous sort of break over financial legislation. Mm -hmm. And Washington kind of took that personally and felt that Madison was being critical of the administration. And then there was also, as as you point out, his outreach to the Supreme Court, looking for advice on legal matters. Yeah. So another one of Washington's really close advisors was John Jay, who was the chief justice of the Supreme Court. And Jay had no problem providing advice on all number of issues, including diplomacy and constitutional questions and anything you can imagine. He actually Um, was a diplomat while he was a chief justice. Yes. (laughs) Yes, he was. He served a number of different, very interesting roles. He's a figure that I think deserves a lot more attention. But I digress. So in 1793, war breaks out between France and Great Britain. And the United States is basically trying to stay out of the conflict and remain neutral and has a series of legal questions about what neutrality looks like and asks for the Supreme Court's advice on how they should proceed. And the Supreme Court basically says that no, they says they can't give advice and and they won't give advice, which is interesting that Jay was willing to on sort of a personal perspective, but not as an official body. They were not willing to, to weigh in before a law was passed. So it gets to 1791, so well into the first term of the Washington administration. Mm -hmm. He finally decides that what he needs is a formal 
not formally institutionalized body, but something that would become the cabinet. And so he selects four individuals, right? Two of them are, are famous, two are less so, right? The famous ones are Jefferson, Secretary of State, Hamilton, Secretary of the Treasury. They are featured in their Broadway musical. Two who get much less time on stage in history are Knox and Randolph, right? So who are they? So Henry Knox was the Secretary of War. He first met Washington in 1775 when Washington took, took over the Continental Army. He was the major general of artillery during the Revolution was a hugely important officer to Washington, had then overseen West Point and then became the Secretary of War under the Confederation. So his advice was so important to Washington because not only did he have this experience with Native Americans, which was a very large part of the administration's focus, especially the first couple of years, but was probably as close to Washington as people got. He, Washington, had a harder time opening up to men than he did to women, and so he didn't have that many super close male friends, and I think Knox and Randolph actually were some of the closest. But Randolph was his lawyer who becomes the attorney general, right? Yes. So Edmund Randolph was, he had actually been an aide-de-camp first for Washington, and then he was the attorney general for Virginia. He was the governor of Virginia. And he, that entire time, was Washington's private lawyer as well. And he became the first attorney general and was someone that Washington really relied on for constitutional questions. But so did the other secretaries. That's something that other people don't really appreciate is that Jefferson and Hamilton had their own legal training and they still asked for Randolph's advice a lot. Explaining who these men were, you know, you pointed out that Randolph had been an aide-de-camp to Washington. Hamilton had been as well during the war. Mm -hmm. Knox had played a key role in the war effort. As it happens, Washington's approach to building the cabinet, seeing the need for the cabinet, building it, and then working with them was itself informed so much by his own experience in war, right? That's a point that you really present well in the book is how much of Washington's approach to presidential leadership was informed by his time as as the commander of the army and the revolution. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, most... I would say that Washington's most influential leadership experience had been based on the war and military. And so that was what he knew and what suited his mentality quite well. He had experienced that in councils of war, he could ask for the officers different opinions and allow them to argue about it and duke it out. And that was a way of really getting all of the information hearing all the different perspectives, and then he could go and he could make a decision in his own time. And Washington's greatest strength as a leader, in my opinion, was his understanding of his own limitations and his willingness to seek out different perspectives so that he could learn from them. And so he really brought that model into the presidency. And as you said, all of the secretaries had close relationships with him personally, but they also brought very different expertise, very different experience very different backgrounds. And that sort of diversity, I mean, obviously, they were all white, fairly well off men, but that sort of diversity in perspective and in experience was incredibly important to him. There seems to be a distinction emerging between advice and authority, where the cabinet early on in our our republic's history acts in a strictly advisory fashion where President Washington goes to them, asks for their opinion, and then decides ultimately what to do. And I think the popular conception now, at least, is that certain cabinet members have a certain formal or informal authority of their own where they sort of act. And then ultimately, the president is accountable for the executive branch's actions. But for instance, the secretary of state can go off in in a particular manner and act on his or her own. 
is that a real distinction that has emerged over time? Is it simply a function of the size of the executive branch and the cabinet broadly understood? Or is that distinction not really present? And I'd add to that, by the way, that Washington was setting precedents, but so were the, the men who filled his cabinet. So thinking through Tall's question, how did Jefferson, Hamilton, and the others sort of approach that new role? Great questions. So while the departments were obviously much smaller in terms of number of clerks and staff, and I would say even perhaps some of the issues that they dealt with, they were dealing with issues that really spanned the globe. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that. They actually spanned the globe. And they had a lot of authority over their own departments that they would sort of manage independently and then go report back to Washington in individual meetings or through writing. So they shared pretty much all of their correspondence with him. Anything official that came through their office, he reviewed. He reviewed all decisions. So he was very much an attentive manager, but he gave them sort of flexibility to go do their thing. But then they didn't talk about those independent department issues in the cabinet. He really viewed the cabinet as an opportunity to bring together the secretaries to consult about a big issue that perhaps touched on many of the different departments, like the neutrality crisis in 1793, that was, you know, war and state and treasury and everything combined into one. And so you're right that the cabinet has expanded pretty dramatically and is much larger, it's much more institutionalized, and certainly the secretaries seem to have more day-to-day authority, maybe without presidential oversight, over how the different executive departments work. But what's really interesting is, depending on who is in office, sometimes those advisory relationships about broader issues are really close, and sometimes they're not. And it really depends on the personalities of the people in play. Now, the second half of your book really focuses on how things played out within that first cabinet and the personalities that really come to the forefront of the story. And you said earlier, Washington would allow his cabinet to duke it out. And they really did in debates surrounding neutrality and other aspects of domestic policy. Do you want to just give us a couple of those examples that you you elaborate in the book? Yeah. So in the book, I look at three different case studies that sort of explore how the cabinet how the personalities shaped events and how the cabinet itself worked to expand executive authority, which is one of the sort of sub-arguments that I make in the book. Yeah, there were Um, three big examples of of sort of incidents that really galvanized the experience of the cabinet. Absolutely. So the first is 1793 is the neutrality crisis. The second is the Whiskey Rebellion in 1794. And then the third is the debate around the Jay Treaty and the first assertion of executive privilege in 1795-1796. These three are really important because the cabinet personnel starts to shift through these three events. So we see how Washington manages the cabinet, how Washington sort of shifted his priorities and his practices depending on who was around him. But we also see how Washington and the secretaries worked really hard to carve out a sphere of presidential influence over first foreign policy, then domestic policy, and then through executive privilege, which was sort of a constitutional arbiter question. And as you said, there were some very big personalities here. They got quite feisty at times. One of my favorite letters Jefferson wrote was describing one of these cabinet meetings and saying that Hamilton gave a jury speech for three quarters of an hour. And at this point, they had been meeting for several hours. They met 
sometimes five times per week in a relatively small room that was quite full of furniture. And it was the summer. It was Philadelphia. There was no air conditioning. And Hamilton talked without interruption for 45 minutes. And so you can just imagine the frustration, the crazy personalities, and you can just almost see Jefferson's head exploding. Yeah, I mean, well, compared to Hamilton's day-long speech about the virtues of monarchy at the Constitutional <laughs> Convention, a 45-minute speech is, is relatively it's true. Quick he was for... being much more choosy with his words. That's right. So you mentioned something in passing there that's really interesting. You said as, as the people sort of exited and, and new people came into the cabinet, Washington sort of recalibrated things to suit new personalities. Could you say a little bit about that? Yeah. So Jefferson retired at the end of 1793. Knox followed at the end of 1794. Hamilton followed at the end of January 1795. And so by early 1795, only Randolph is left of these sort of original secretaries. And Washington really struggled to get people of first-tier caliber back into the cabinet because it was kind of a thankless task at that point. It wasn't very it's not that it wasn't reputable, but the pay was low. You were away from your family. There was a lot of hardship and burden that went along with it. And so I sort of affectionately refer to the replacements as the B team. And it's pretty clear based on the correspondence and the number of meetings that Washington just really didn't trust them as much as he trusted his original secretaries. And so he, when big issues came up, he would ask sometimes for their written opinion. But more often than not, he would consult individually with Randolph, and then he would ask for Hamilton's opinion outside of the cabinet. And that was a really important step because it basically ensured that the cabinet did not have a right to be a part of the decision-making process. It prevented sort of the institutionalization of the cabinet as part of this process. And really ensured going forward that every president would sort of have the right to figure out who their closest advisors were going to be and how that relationship was going to work. Well, let's get back to the A-team. Even with the A-team, how did President Washington really sort of work out the communications with the cabinet? You said he'd bring them together for meetings and allow them to duke it out. But of course, there was also things that were in writing both for Washington and, of course, sometimes the writings took on a, a much more public form. I'm thinking of, of Hamilton's famous reports on, on the financial system, mm-hmm. on banking, on manufacturers, and so on. When Washington was first bringing his original cabinet together and, and getting their advice, what did the process just generally look like? Yeah. So if it was an issue about a particular department, he would usually they would usually start with an exchange of written correspondence. The secretary, let's say Hamilton, would send whatever letter he had received and his proposed reply and Washington would review it and maybe make a couple of notes and send it back. If it was a more complicated issue, they would usually follow up the first round of letters with an individual meeting and sort of talk it out. And then Hamilton would go and take care of whatever they had decided. If it was a issue that required deliberation by the group, Washington would usually send out a letter. There were often questions included that would sort of serve as the agenda for the meeting, but also, you know, give the secretaries time to sort of think about what it is that he wanted them to talk about. And then they would gather in his private study in the president's house in Philadelphia and talk through the issue. And if they disagreed, then Washington would ask for written opinions afterwards. And he did this for a couple of reasons. One, it allowed them to make sure they had given him all the information they wanted to provide. Two, it allowed him to sort of think through things and make a decision in his own time. He tended to make decisions a little bit slowly. And then once he made a decision, moved quite quickly to implement them. 
And then three, if he was making a controversial decision, he had written advice that other people had supported that decision. And he never ended up publishing anything like that, but he had it if he needed it. So finally, we've discussed his official cabinet, but you mentioned he lied on advice from James Madison in Congress during his first term. In his second term, he was looking to outside advice from Hamilton, who was no longer in the cabinet. One person we haven't talked about really has been John Adams, who's the vice president. And today, we would assume sort of naturally the vice president would be right there in the cabinet, sort of in the middle of things. That wasn't the case in Washington's cabinet, right? How would you describe John Adams's relationship to everything we've been discussing? Yeah, that's right. So John Adams and Washington had sort of a complicated relationship. They very much respected each other, but I think that Washington didn't always trust Adams' judgment because he had a tendency to put his foot in his mouth. And Adams was a little bit envious of Washington's sort of stature and the international acclaim he had. So early on, when Washington first entered into office, he did exchange a number of letters with Adams asking for his advice about some of the more social customs he should set up and what did Adams think was appropriate for those things. But in the first year that Adams was you know, sitting in the Senate, he sort of squandered any political capital he had by advocating for a very grand title for the president. It was something like his highness and royal protector of our liberties and rights or something like that. I'm not sure if I got it exactly correct, but it was very long and very cumbersome and slightly ridiculous. And a lot of people made fun of him for this and said it was too monarchical. It was too aristocratic. And as a result, he sort of became a non-entity in political conversations. And so I don't know if that's the reason why, because Washington never explicitly said, here's why Adams is not invited to these things. But He wasn't ever then invited to them and wasn't ever included in that sort of conversation. And at least for the next couple of administrations, you know, for Adams, his vice president was Thomas Jefferson, who was his political rival. And Jefferson had sort of a notoriously bad relationship with his vice presidents, including Aaron Burr, who he later tried to get convicted of treason. And so, you know, it it, it sort of established this precedent that your vice president is very much a political pick in terms of what will help you with the ticket, but not necessarily based on the relationship. And so actually, presidents having good relationships or even close working relationships with their VPs is much more rare than it is common. Yeah, I wrote about this a long, long time ago. I'm probably getting the, the, the trivia wrong now, but I think the first vice president to really get involved in cabinet meetings might have been under FDR. So all of this sort of tells us a lot about the original relationship between a president and his vice president, the relationship between the president and the Senate. And then just to circle back one last time, thinking through the relationship between the president and the heads of these departments, because it wasn't taken for granted that they would necessarily be the president's closest advisors. As you said, they weren't always the president's closest advisors. And the members of the cabinet, since they were Senate-confirmed heads of departments, the attorney general, I suppose, there was no justice department, but for the other three, they were nominated by the president confirmed by the Senate. And as Hamilton himself had written in Federalist 76, the Senate's process was supposed to be sort of a silent check, sometimes a less than silent check, just to make sure that the president wasn't simply staffing up the administration with people he he personally trusted out of personal relationships, right? But there was this second check on the Senate vetting nominees. How should we think that through then when these heads of these departments are now the, the president's closest advisors, but they do in a way sort of answer to the Senate. Was that, was that debated much in the original Congress? 
Yeah. So there was a lot of conversation about trying to make sure that the president had safe advisors. So the reason the Senate was initially considered as you know a council is because they were at least at the time they were indirectly elected, but they were elected. And so they were responsible to the states and responsible to the people. And so if the people felt like they were giving bad advice, they could be removed. And that was very important to people to feel like there weren't these, you know, terribly corrupt advisors influencing the president. And as you said, with the secretaries, they were supposed to be vetted by the Senate. And it was not just a pro forma check. I mean, from the very beginning, the Senate rejected people that Washington appointed because he felt not necessarily to the cabinet, but to other appointments because they felt that it was not an appropriate person. So that was a very important part of the decision-making process. And, you know, it is something for us to think about going forward because the president, whoever that person is, has a lot of flexibility to decide who they're going to listen to. And there's very little public or congressional oversight over those private relationships. It is important to think about sort of who is advising the president and what advice are they giving? And is that really, you know, the way that we want it to be? Well, you mentioned at the outset of this conversation that the original Senate was 24 members, right? Mm -hmm. President Washington goes to the Senate and he gets this sort of unwieldy bunch of people. Mm -hmm. It's not conducive to real advice. As it happens, President Trump's original cabinet, I looked this up for our conversation, there were 24 members of his cabinet. I think it's now down to 23. I don't think the White House currently lists UN ambassador as a cabinet level official. You have the cabinet secretaries, you have other cabinet level officials. It's now, I think, 23 members cabinet meetings we now see on TV, actually. They're reported. It's different now. My guess is that it's not nearly as conducive to advice gathering as it was. It is probably conducive to sort of leadership in terms of the president announcing an agenda. And one last thing is, because the official cabinet is so large, sort of in its place, we see, you know, kitchen cabinets, right? Are the presidents yeah. surrounding themselves with this informal, smaller group of friends who in some ways, they don't have official leadership roles, but in some ways, they resemble sort of Washington's instincts in the original cabinet. How should we think about modern cabinets? Yeah, well, I mean, as you said, the cabinet is significantly larger. It's much more institutionalized. The National Security Council has taken over some of the responsibilities that we would typically associate with the original cabinet. So the cabinet meeting is going to look very different and is not going to serve the same role because that wouldn't really be possible. However, some presidents have still maintained really good relationships with some of their secretaries and they've been very important advisors. You know, some have secretaries that they don't aren't as close with and that's kind of how it goes sometimes too. There is, you know, legislation that has been put in place to try and ensure that the public continues to have some checks over who these people are, which is why we see legislation about tenure of office. And if, you know, a position can only be empty for so long, or there can only be an acting person in office for so long. And those are sort of attempts to try and provide that sort of oversight. But yeah, as you mentioned, their kitchen cabinets can emerge. And, you know, Jackson is a great example of one. Kennedy had one as well. I would say not from a, you know, a partisan standpoint, but from a citizen standpoint, Generally, when there are two bodies that are sort of managing the president's agenda, there's going to be conflict and confusion about who is in charge and who's making a decision and who's overseeing policy. And regardless of where your political perspective is, that sort of conflict generally isn't good for the executive branch and generally isn't good for the presidency or the nation. And so the most effective presidents have been ones that have been able to 
have good advisors in the cabinet and then manage those personalities because, I mean, regardless of who it is, these are people who are super experienced. They have probably pretty strong opinions. They're probably used to being listened to. And so managing that can be an almost impossible task, but the best administrations are the ones that really can try and do so. Yeah. If we had another extra hour, there'd be so much to discuss in terms of what comes after Washington. Lincoln's famous team of rivals. You just mentioned Andrew Jackson, which I'm sure made Tal's heart flutter. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to ask about who the worst cabinet ever assembled was assembled by. I don't know. Maybe maybe we want to name names. Maybe we don't. I can name 19th century names if you would like. Um, I would particularly like mid to early 19th century names. (laughs) Well, the worst cabinets in the 19th century were, you know, unequivocally John Adams, which was borderline treasonous, Andrew Jackson, which was calamitous, and then Andrew Johnson, which, you know, started his impeachment process because he was trying to get rid of people that he wasn't supposed to. So those are, those are, the 19th century is a pretty easy choice and I'll allow people to make their own decisions about the 20th century. And Johnson's such an interesting not Jackson tall, but Johnson. Johnson is such an interesting case study, right? Because the cabinet that he had such trouble with was the cabinet that he inherited from Lincoln, right? The wartime cabinet that was so successful when Johnson becomes president, the Republicans in Congress want to keep that cabinet in charge and hence the, the Tenure of Office Act that you mentioned. And so you see there sort of another example of Congress really wanting to try to to codify mm-hmm. not just the cabinet, but one particular cabinet and keep them in as a counterweight to the president. And and no matter what you think of Johnson and the members of that cabinet, and I tend to prefer Edwin Stanton over President Johnson. Most people um, do. Most people do. Trying to set a cabinet at odds with the president, no matter who the president is, does detract from all the energy and the executive that that Hamilton and Washington knew that was was so important from the start. Yeah, absolutely. Lindsay, this has been just a fascinating conversation. When I first saw news of your book, I was very excited because I've thought for a while now that the two best books that any student of constitutionalism can read, you know, separate from all the law books, are Fergus Bordwich's book, The First Congress, which came out a few years ago. Mm -hmm. And then right after that, Jonathan Gnapp's book, The Second Creation, which was the subtitles Fixing the American Constitution of the Founding Era. Two great sort of books on on nation building, literally. And now, whenever I recommend those two books, I'll, I'll recommend yours right along with oh, them. Oh, well, thank you so much. I'm such a huge fan of Jonathan's book. I mean, Fergus's book is great, but Jonathan's book especially. And so to be paired with him is a, a real honor. Well, all deserve it. I can't recommend this book highly enough to our audience. Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us today. And thanks to our audience, as always, for joining us. Please join us again for the next episode of Unprecedential. Unprecedental.